We're going to turn our attention this morning to the book of Deuteronomy. That's the fifth book of the Bible, the Old Testament, sometimes called the Law of Moses, the Pentateuch, the five books. And you should have a sermon notes page in your bulletin this morning. It'll give you a little bit of an outline. And uh, as I've uh, been explaining, we're not gonna, I'm not going to go through the entirety of the book. I'm going to give you an outline and some uh, sem- semblance of what it all means and how it all fits together. And then we're going to survey a couple of texts here and there. So if you're visiting, uh, we've uh, been in a little bit of a series uh, going through the whole Bible, uh, doing one book at a time to give us an overview. And I pray and hope that uh, you either read the Bible, uh, the book of the Bible that we're going to look at uh, the week before, or go back and uh, read it uh, for the first time or even reread it. And so Deuteronomy this morning, Deuteronomy. Well, Deuteronomy is uh, the theological core of the Old Testament, one writer described it. It's like the book of Romans of the Old Testament. It sums up God's works and his words from Genesis all the way to Numbers. But then it also sets the table for what's going to come in Joshua through Kings. Joshua through Kings. Joshua through Kings are described in the Hebrew Bible. Those are the former prophets. And so Joshua judges and then the king, Samuel and Kings give us the application of what happens to the Israelites. Uh, and Deuteronomy is really big in those books, and it's always pointing back to Deuteronomy. Here's how they failed. Here's how the king uh, did this and that. Here's why this king did evil in the sight of the Lord, and here's why that king didn't, and so forth. So it's the core. It's the theological hub and heart of the Old Testament. It points us backwards to Genesis, to Numbers, all that God has already done, but it also points us forward uh, in the, to the former prophets, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. Uh, and it opens with the Hebrew words, Elah ha devarim, which uh, is translated in our, in our English Bibles as these are the words. Uh, Jewish rabbis just simply shorten that to devarim uh, words. So the title of the book of Deuteronomy for the Jews is words, or devarim. Uh, the translators of the Septuagint, that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament, gave it the name uh, Deuteronomion, which means second law. Second law, because it gives the second table of the law, or the second time the law is given, that's Deuteronomy chapter 5. Exodus 20 was given the first time, Deuteronomy 5, the second time. Uh, but also, the book of Deuteronomy explains for the second time what the law is to the second generation. That's where we left off last Sunday in the book of Numbers, where that second generation of the Israelites are on the precipice of the promised land, and they are waiting to go in, and they are hearing all the things that our forefathers and foremothers did not do. They did not believe. They did not enter my rest. I swore my wrath. They could not enter my rest, the Lord said. And so that second generation had been raised up, and they were about to go in, and so Moses there on the plains of Moab, overlooking the promised land on the other side of the Jordan River, gives the law, explains the law, preaches the law to them. You see that uh, in chapter number 1, verse 5. Beyond the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to explain this law. And so Deuteronomy is a lengthy series of Moses sermons, basically, expounding, expositing, applying, exhorting from the Old Testament law. Now, one of the cool things about Deuteronomy uh, that makes it very interesting is that uh, it reads like ancient Near Eastern treaties. So in the ancient Near East, at the time the Israelites were about to go into the Promised Land, there were uh, other civilizations, other people groups, other nations, other kings, and they made treaties. 
uh, and archaeologists have unearthed these treaties, and these treaties read in a certain way. There's sort of a formulaic pattern that they go down. So if you've bought a car, or you've leased a car, you rent a house, you buy a house, uh, whatever it might be, uh, even just buying a phone these days, there's a, there's a contract, isn't there? And yeah, we all just click the, I've already read and understood the terms and conditions. We don't read the fine print, but that fine print has sort of a formulaic outline to it. It was the same way in the Old Testament. They had treaties between this nation and that nation, this king and that king, these people and those people, and they would have these treaties sort of carved out on tablets of stone, and they would read them in the hearing of all their leaders at least, but all their people, uh, and they followed a certain pattern. And you see there on the outline, it gives you something of what that looks like. It's not exact, uh, but Deuteronomy adapts that and adopts that pattern uh, because here is God addressing his people. Now, what's the big difference between a treaty and a covenant? What's the big difference between a treaty and a covenant? So, sure, gods, but the treaties of the ancient world, there, there were various gods. And so the king of, uh, of the Assyrians and the king of the Moabites would write up a treaty and they would invoke their various deities and gods and they would inscribe these tablets and they would each have a copy of it. And they would take it back home to their home temples and put it at the feet of their home gods. So that's what a treaty is. Notice there's two equal parties. One king and another king. One nation and another nation. Sometimes there's a higher king or a more powerful king called a suzerain. And there was a vassal kingdom, a, a lesser kingdom. They had to pay tribute and give taxes and sometimes muster up some soldiers, uh, give some horses or chariots to the, to the great king whenever he needed them. Uh, for his battles. That's what a treaty was like. The difference between a treaty and a covenant, at least one of the differences, is that a covenant is not between equal parties. Treaties were between somewhat equal parties, at least in terms of their humanity to human beings. But in Scripture, who makes covenants? It's God who makes the covenants. God comes down. There's no unilateral, uh, the, uh, there's no bilateral discussions. There, there's no uh, even a third party coming in, just like uh, in, in, uh, right now with the war in the Middle East, uh, third parties are coming in and trying to negotiate terms of peace and so forth. Uh, there are no equal parties. God makes covenants. God created us, and God in the beginning made our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the garden, and he initiated, he gave a covenant, the covenant of works with our first father, Adam. Adam didn't ask for it. Adam couldn't negotiate the terms of that covenant. You know, if I, if I violate the law, Lord, I see what you say here, that if I touch or uh, if I eat of that tree, the knowledge of good and evil, I'm going to surely die. Now, let's come back to the drawing table and uh, to the drawing board and, and let's talk about those, those curses, Lord. Let's lessen them a little bit. No, Adam couldn't do that. God unilaterally initiated and inaugurated a covenant with humanity. It's the same way in the book of Deuteronomy. It's the same way in the Old Testament. God makes covenants, and it's the responsibility of us as human beings, but us as the people of God, uh, merely to respond to what God says. It just, it just reminds us that God is God, and we are not. God is God, and we are human beings. Uh, we might think and pretend that we have great rights and that we have great responsibilities uh, and that we have the power of the world at our very own fingers, even on our own phones. We might even think uh, 
uh, that we can put a little chip now in our brain as it's being uh, developed, that we, can, that we can access all the world's libraries in an instant, that we are that smart and that we are that great. God is God and you're not. God initiates co- covenants. We're creatures. We have to respond on his terms and do what he says. And so there's something of that outline here in Deuteronomy. There's always a prologue that, that describes the past, what, what, this, what this king has done for that king. But in this case, is what God has done for his people. That's chapter 1, uh, roughly chapter 1 through 4, you see there, the prologue. Then there are what are called stipulations. Here are the terms of the treaty in the Old Testament, or in the ancient Near East, the covenant in Deuteronomy. And there's sort of three parts to it in Deuteronomy where, where uh, it opens up with the Ten Commandments. That's the end of chapter 4 to chapter 5. The Ten Commandments are listed out there and explained. Uh, and then in chapter 6 to 26, all the Ten Commandments are given great uh, explanation. And you see that on the outline there. I'm not going to go through all that, but just kind of encourage you to read through that and see how the various commandments uh, line up with those various laws and those various chapters and those various verses. Uh, there was always some provision for storing the, the treaty tablets and reading them. That's not necessarily included in Deuteronomy. There was always a list of witnesses. It's not itself necessarily uh, here because who's the witness of the covenant that God makes with Israel? God is the, is the witness. <laughs> in treaties, there are these witnesses. You know, this king and that king and all their people. Their soldiers, their generals and so forth. There's only one witness when it comes to covenants. It's God. God makes the covenant, God sets up the terms, and God himself is going to keep covenants, or he's not, right, in human terms. And we know that he is, because he's God. So there's really no list of witnesses, there's no need for a list of witnesses, it's God. And so in the place of that, there's this ceremony where we read in chapters 27 and 28 this, this ratification of the covenant. And then there's a list of blessings and curses. If you obey, this happens, if you disobey, that happens. So Deuteronomy is a, is a very long book, but that's the, the general idea of it, that God makes a covenant, and Moses adapts this ancient treaty pattern, uh, but he adapts it. It's not exact uh, for the purpose of the Lord making a covenant with the Israelites. So the big theme, the big, the big idea of Deuteronomy as you read through it is, is this, and, and think of it like this. Uh, sort of like numbers, it's to prepare that second generation of Israelites who had been born in the wilderness to their unfaithful parents, to prepare that second generation for their coming life in the promised land. Now, one of the things that I think is important to, to realize, you read Deuteronomy is, uh, by way of application, is every generation of God's covenant people needs to embrace the Lord's promises afresh. So God had brought them all out, brought the parents out, of Egypt into the promised land, or into the wilderness, on the way to the promised land. And he made all these promises to them, but they, they were disobedient. The second generation that's born in the wilderness, they weren't there. They didn't see the Red Sea. They didn't see all the miracles. We saw that last Sunday. But they have to embrace. They have to believe. They have to receive all that God had said. As if they were there in the first place. We'll see that in just a minute here, in chapter number 4. So every generation of God's covenant people needs to embrace God's promises for themselves afresh. That's true if your father was faithful Joshua or Caleb. That was true if your father was rebellious Korah. It didn't matter. You needed to appropriate, to believe, to embrace the promises for yourself. 
And so the application is, and we see this not just in Deuteronomy, but we see it all throughout the Bible. Ephesians 6, for example, fathers instruct your children. Why? You need to teach your children the meaning of the covenant that God has made with them in their baptism every single day. That they died with Jesus Christ in baptism and that they rose up to a new life. Teach your children the faith, loved ones. And children, embrace Jesus by faith. And show that you believe in him by living a life of repentance and a life of newness, a life of obedience and of love towards God and neighbor. So as we would say, it's not good enough just for your parents to believe. You need to believe too, children. Believe in Jesus and show that love uh, and show show your faith by your love towards him. So after chronicling the, the wilderness generation, that's the, um, the disobedient generation of the book of Numbers, after doing that in chapters 1 through 4, Moses gives a summary exhortation to this generation, uh, the second generation that is. Uh, uh, chapters 1 to 3 is the wilderness generation, excuse me. Uh, Moses then gives a summary exhortation, that's the first thing we want to see this morning, a summary exhortation to that second generation about to enter into the promised land. Uh, They were to listen, notice verse 1. They were to do, to listen and to do the laws that God gave. In other words, the Old Testament, right out of the chute here, is telling us that it was far from just being an external religion. Oftentimes, the Old Testament is called an external religion. The New Testament is a religion of the heart. The covenant people, even there in the wilderness, couldn't just be hearers, but as James says, they had to also be what? doers of the word. So when James tells you, New Covenant Christian, don't just be a hearer, but also be a doer, he didn't just make that up. This is what God has been saying to his people for generation after generation. And then comes a very famous commandment, chapter number four, verse number two. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it. You probably know that verse, maybe if we're talking to uh, you know, an unbeliever, and we're talking perhaps to uh, a Roman Catholic, or we're talking to, say, a Jehovah's Witness, and we're arguing about the Bible. And these verses, and verses like these come up. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. That's what God says. And so we take his word seriously. But how much more so is that little phrase there in verse 2 true for us now that the Messiah has come? As Paul describes him, Jesus is the end. He's the telos. He's the goal of the law. All that Moses said, its goal was found in Christ. And because Jesus fulfills the law as its end, as its goal, and he's given us the, interpre- uh, the, authoritative, inter- the authoritative interpretation of it in the Gospels and the Epistles, We read this very same phrase, don't add to the word, don't take from the word. We read it in the very last book, in the very last chapter, almost the very last verse of our Bibles in Revelation chapter number 22. It's not just a verse about the Bible in general, but it's telling us the end of the law has come, Christ has come, Messiah has come. Now, also notice the important teaching of verses 5 through 7 of chapter 4. Keeping the law for ancient Israelites, for us, the entirety of the word, 
it has a purpose. It has an, uh, an evangelistic purpose. Notice verse 6. The Israelites, and even we, are to keep and to do them. Why? First, that, you will, that will be wisdom and your understanding. Uh, notice, knowing the Word and keeping the Word, knowing the law and keeping the law, we're linked together. Again, it's not just being a hearer or a knower, but also being a doer. So, knowing and keeping the law was linked. Knowledge and wisdom was linked together. We talk about head knowledge versus heart knowledge. These things are linked together. Secondly, notice, this wisdom and understanding for us as we keep the law and we, and we know the law, as God was saying to the Israelites, is in the sight, verse 6 and 7, in the sight of the peoples. Who are the peoples? The Gentiles, the nations, right? The world. Who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? In other words, notice, the Lord through Moses to the Israelites was saying that the people of God, you and I, actually have to live out the word. Again, don't just be a hearer, but be a doer. And we live today, here in the year 2023, in the precipice of 2024, in a, in a world, in a, in a state, in a nation, in a state, in a county, in cities here, full of people who are beaten down, who are broken, who are burned out, and who are bummed out by the church. You may have, may have heard of, the, of, of these movements called ex-evangelicals. Or those who are deconstructing their faith. You've heard of those? Why are they doing this? Why are people leaving the church and calling themselves ex-evangelicals? Why are they leaving the church and calling themselves those who deconstruct the faith? They're doing that because of the church. At least that's the outward reason. They're doing it because of the church. It's burned them, it has broken them, it has beaten them down to a pulp. It should not be this way. It should not be this way. It cannot be this way here in this church. People should see our lives and they should say things like this. Surely this is a great nation, a great people, a great church. It's a wise and understanding people. What nation is so great like ours that is a God like ours who is near us and with us? And so let's be different, loved ones. Let's be different. And those that we know who are, quote-unquote, ex-evangelicals, those who are into deconstructing the faith, bring them here. Bring them here. And I pray and trust that we're ready for that. And that we ourselves would be not only hearers, but doers. So there is an evangelistic purpose of the law. I heard Ben Shapiro say recently that the Jews aren't an evangelistic purpose. I don't think he knows his book of Deuteronomy very well. You know, the Christian church is all about evangelism. You confront people to faith. The Jews are passive. We, people come to us. That's not what it says here. They were to live out their faith. They were to be a light to the nations so that people would be attracted to them and come to the God of the Israelites. That's what it says here. Live out the law. Live out the word so that when people hear and see us speaking and doing, notice together, speaking and doing the words of God, they would see us as wise and understanding that has a God that is near to us, who's with us. So let's be different. Again, every generation has this need to embrace the Lord. And 
So Moses, as just to close out this chapter 4, Moses writes again to the second generation. He's preaching these words on the, on the plains of Moab to the second generation. He's exhorting the Israelites, this second generation, now you teach the third and the fourth generation, your children and your grandchildren, verse number 9. Remember, they weren't at Mount Sinai. That's what verse 10 and following says. They weren't at Mount Sinai when the law was given, when the signs and wonders happened. But yet, notice in verse 10, Moses writes to this generation as if they were there back then in the wilderness at Mount Sinai, having just come out of Egypt. In other words, by faith, they were to embrace their identity. They were by faith, to live as if they had been there. And so by faith, our children are taught, we teach them, about their baptism, although they don't remember their baptism. And then they are to embrace all that their baptism signifies and portrays. Believe by faith and live it out in love, repentance and obedience. So that's that's chapter 4. Uh, it gives us this summary exhortation, really, for the whole of the book. Now, secondly, I'm just going to summarize for you a couple of these stipulations, as they're called. Just, we're going to go through a couple of texts here uh, to give you some examples. So, uh, the end of chapter 4, at verse 44, through the end of chapter 5, verse 33, we have the Ten Commandments. And then chapter 6 through 26, those commandments are exposited Explain. Let me just give you a couple of highlights. Go to chapter 6. I'm going to explain a couple of well-known, and I'm going to go to one that is crazy, okay? So just give you a forewarning here. Well-known text, and one that you're not going to, it's going to kind of be weird. It's going to be strange. But uh, all, 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 all for good. So chapter 6. The Lord called Moses to teach the law, and he calls that, in verse 1, the commandment, the statutes, the rules, right? There's all these different sort of synonyms for all that God is saying, his words, Devarim, uh, the book, the words. Uh, And the purpose of Moses' teaching was that you may fear the Lord your God, verse 2. That you may fear the Lord your God. You and your son and your son's son. So again, that idea of the covenant is passed down from from us to our children, to our children's children. We pray for a thousand generations, verse 2. But what does it mean to fear God? What does it mean to fear God? These laws, these commands, these rules, these words of God, this teaching of the Lord, this Torah, was was meant to cause them to fear the Lord, your God, and and that you and your sons and your your sons' sons might fear the Lord. What does it mean to fear God? To fear God. There's two ways in which fear can be understood in the Bible. There is a fear that we would call, in, our, in English, being afraid. Are some people afraid of God? Should some people be afraid of God? Yes. Unbelievers should have that fear of God, that being afraid of God. But Moses is writing here, of course, to the, to the covenant people. And there are hypocrites within the church, in all churches, but the church in general, They should fear God in in the sense of being afraid. Believers, though, don't have that kind of fear, that kind of being afraid. Our fear of God, that's the second way in which it's usually understood in the Bible, is to have reverence for God, to respect God, to honor God for all that he is 
in all that he says. For example, the Apostle Paul tells us, or he told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, uh, that, that God has given us a spirit not of fear, not of fear, but of power, love, self-control. Believers don't have an afraid fear of God. Believers have a reverence for God, a trust in God, a childlike, as our Hatterberg Catechism says, a childlike trust in God. So note the way we fear God. Notice verse 2. So, so how does a believer, how do the Israelites, the covenant people, how were they to reverence God, honor God, trust God by keeping all his statutes and his commandments? By keeping all the statutes and his commandments. It's by following the word. It's by listening to God and by doing what he says. Again, don't just be a hearer, but be a doer. In verses 10 and following, Moses tells this generation out there in the wilderness, when the Lord your God brings you into the land, and he would then go on to give them, as verses 10, 11, and 12 describe, cities they didn't build, houses full of all kinds of great things that you didn't fill, cisterns that you didn't dig, water wells in the ground, vineyards, orchards that you did not plant. And when you do, when God gives you all this stuff, remember, verse 12, it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Remember, they didn't come out. They weren't even alive yet. But as if, right, by faith, they were to embrace anew God's gospel and the promises. To remember him then was to fear and serve him alone, verses 13 and 14. Why? Why should Israelites fear, meaning reverence, the Lord alone, and reject other gods? Now notice verse 15. It gets kind of tricky here. For the Lord your God is in your midst. Uh, the, for the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you. So there is a, there is a fear of God, a, a being afraid, but there's a reverence for God, a trust in God. Believers have that second kind. We're not afraid of God. We trust him. He's our father in Christ. So how do we then, and how are these Israelites, how are they then to read verses like this or hear teaching like this, that they were to reverence God and they were to, to, to remember God and to fear him and to serve him according to his word? And if they didn't, God, who was a jealous God, would be angry with them and kindle his anger against them and destroy them. How are believers to read that verse? This is really important for us to grasp. Verse 15 is a word of law. This is a law word. This is a harsh word. This is a very strict command and threat of God. The question is, who should be afraid when they, would, when they heard that strict, harsh command, who should have been afraid of what it said? If there were any unbelievers and if there were hypocrites. Unbelievers and hypocrites hear those kinds of laws and they, those words should strike them to the core. You should be afraid of God. If you're here today you don't know Jesus Christ, you should be afraid of God. If you don't follow everything that he says, God says that he is angry and his anger is kindled against you. There's no condemnation for the believer, but 
the unbeliever is already condemned. That's what Jesus said. Unbelievers and hypocrites should hear verse 15 and be afraid of God. What about us? What about you? What about me as a believer? We should hear a law like this, a command like this, a strict thundering of God's commands, and it should humble you and me to repentance and faith. Lord, that's me by nature. I deserve that. That was me at once, at one time. You should be humbled when you hear a verse like that. And then turn to faith in the Savior, the one that you reverence, the one that you trust. In other words, the law of God, if we understand it rightly in its relationship to the gospel, the law is never meant to beat the sheep. That's how it's taken a lot of times in a lot of Christian churches. We read a verse like verse 15, and it's my job then to say, you know, you better get with it, people. Get with the program. If not, God's angry with you. And then believers get confused. They get scared. They should be. They get all caught up in a knot. And they become ex-evangelicals. They become those who deconstruct the faith because they, their pastors can't rightly divide the word. The law is not meant to beat you. The law, to you as a believer, I'll come to this at the end, the law is meant to teach you your sins and to guide you how to love God in response. So hear that kind of a law, that kind of harsh command. Be humbled, trust in Jesus. Then comes the most important verse of all in the Old Testament, verse 4. Chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. What's that verse called in Hebrew, do you know? The Shema, the Shema. That means, that's the word for hear. Hear, O Israel, Shema. This is the most fundamental creed of God's people. They had just left Egypt, or they had left 40 years before, and all of its gods, all of its divinities, all of its polytheism, they left it all behind. And now they're going towards the promised land, the, 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 to the land of Canaan, and guess what? There are a lot of gods waiting for them there too. But the Lord, who created them and who liberated them, was one. Was one. And more than just that, more than just that there's a singular God, monotheism, he is the only God, the, the unique God, the supreme God, the true God. It's not just that he's one God amongst many and that the Israelites chose this one God. That's called henotheism. But he is the only God. He is the true God. All others are idols. And behind those idols, demons. There's only one God. And the call to that belief, the call of that declaration, there's only one God, is you shall love the Lord your God, verse 5, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Does that sound familiar to you? Does verse 5 sound familiar to you as a Christian? Who else said that? Jesus. They asked him, what's the great commandment in the law? And what did he say? The first of the great commandment is to love your Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Matthew, Matthew 22. The heart is the center of the human's existence. And from that center, this command to love this one God was to emanate out into every area of life. Notice verse 7. You shall teach them these laws, these commandments, these statutes, these rules. Teach them diligently to your children. We call that catechesis or catechism. Note the covenant theology. 
behind this. Believers teach their children to love God too because our children belong. They're not, if I can put it like this, our children are not vipers in diapers. Have you heard that before? Children of Christians are not vipers in diapers. And it's our job to kind of shake them and wake them up you know, with, with uh, the, the sinners in the hands of an angry God kind of an approach. Our job is to teach them. They've been baptized. They belong to Jesus. Our job is to teach them to embrace Christ, to love him, to love neighbor as self. And so this love that you were to have for God with your whole heart, the center of your being, was to then emanate out into your, the life of your children, should the Lord give them to you, or your grandchildren. You shall talk of them, again, these laws, when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. And so when you are at rest, when you are at work, in private and in public, from the beginning of every day until its end. This is what we mean by living our life in the presence of God to the glory of God, every moment of every day. That's what Moses was telling the Israelites. Love God and do so in every way you possibly can, every moment, in every aspect of every single day. And then in chapter 7, there's this beautiful teaching where verse 1 tells us, when this one Lord your God brings you into the land and he clears away many nations before you, they are more numerous, verse 1, they're more mighty than you. Verse 2, Israel would actually defeat them and devote them to complete destruction and break down their altars and so forth, verse 5. Why would this happen? Verse 6, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. That's what Exodus 19 said. So the first generation, they were told that you are a holy nation, a royal priesthood. The second generation is told the same thing. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. You are set apart from every other nation and people on the face of the earth. Notice again, uh, as verse 6 goes on to say, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Does that verse sound familiar to you? Does that verse sound familiar to you? That you are chosen, that you are set apart, that you are a special possession of the Lord out of all the peoples of the earth? That should sound familiar to you. The new covenant people of God are described this way. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Sounds kind of like Moses, doesn't it? You see what we see, uh, what we learn from reading our Bibles this way, by reading the Old Testament in light of the New, is that we need to reject two false views. First, there's a view that separates and divides the church from Israel or Israel from the church. That's called dispensationalism. We reject that. The second view is the view that the church replaces Israel. That's called supersessionism. The church supersedes Israel. What Deuteronomy 7 verse 6 in light of 1 Peter 2 verse 9 teaches us is that there's one assembly. There's one church. There's one people. There's one people from Genesis to Revelation. Now, in the time of Deuteronomy, it was almost exclusively, not exactly, but almost exclusively, uh, made up of Israelites. Now, it's made up of Jews and Gentiles from every people, language, and ethnicity. 
And Moses explains the reason for Israel being chosen and separated out from all the rest of the nations. Verse 7 and 8. It was not because you were more in number than any other people the Lord, that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. So here's why he chose them. But it is because the Lord... What? Why did he choose them? Verse 8, but it is because the Lord what? Loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. Again, what was once true of the Israelites as God's covenant people then is still true of his covenant people now. God the Father chose us in Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world in love. He predestined us, Ephesians 1 says. Exactly as Moses said it. Salvation is of the Lord, loved ones. God saves. God chooses. God separates. God loves. God elects. God predestines. It's God's work. It's God's work. Just love him in return. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now in chapter 12, chapter 12, we read this. That when they came into the land, verse 1, they were to worship the one true God only in the way he commanded. That's the second commandment. That's what it's all about. The first commandment is loving God alone. Chapter 6, 7, for example. And doing so as he commands. Chapter number 12. That's the second commandment in a nutshell. Because he commanded them, they were to destroy all the places where the nations served their gods. Verse 2. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. Verse 4. So, Worship God not as the nations, not as the world, but as God wants to be worshipped. And so that meant that they were to seek, verse 5, the place the Lord would choose to put his name and make his habitation there. So as they were moving throughout the wilderness for 40 years in tents, he also lived in a tent that's called the tabernacle. The day was coming when that tabernacle would have a central location, not in the wilderness, but in the promised land. And eventually, of course, that would mean a tangible, physical, uh, more permanent, stable place called the temple. That's in the days, the desire of David and in the days of Solomon. The thing is, the, the, the important thing is in verse 6, it is there, that central place, that central tent or tabernacle where God habitated or lived. There you shall go. It's there that you shall bring your offerings, your sacrifices, verse 6, your tithes, your, your vow offerings, your free will offerings, and so on and so forth. He commanded them to worship in the way that he deserved and desired. Now, as we know, we fast forward in our Bibles, the problem was eventually, eventually, that central place of worship, the temple, even that became an idol to the Israelites. In the days of the prophet Jeremiah, they were crying out when they were being threatened with exile and invasion, the temple of the Lord! The temple of the Lord! The temple of the Lord! As if just having a temple in your land guaranteed safety and salvation. As if the temple was their savior, not the Lord of the temple. As Isaiah said, they, they drew near with their lips but their, and they honored the Lord with their, with their mouths, but their hearts were far from him. 
And so it was in the days in which this Lord of the temple stooped down and became man, he met a Samaritan woman, meaning, according to the Judeans, the, those in the south where the temple was, she was a half-breed. She was unworthy of fellowship with the Jews. She told Jesus that the Samaritans had their own temple on their own mountain, and the Jews had their own temple on their own mountain. But Jesus said this, The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. In other words, the centrality of the temple was coming to an end. Why? Because it was never meant to be an end in itself. It was always meant to teach them something more important. The hour is coming, and now is here, John 4, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And here's the, the amazing thing of what Jesus says. He says this, for or because the Father is seeking such people to worship him. For generations upon generations, there was only a little remnant of those who were doing that. And Jesus came to say, it's, not, no, it's no longer about this mountain, that mountain, this building, that building. The Father himself is seeking worshipers to worship him with their whole heart as he commands. So you see, it's not just that they worship God according to his commands. They had all the rules, all the regulations, the right temple, the right priesthood. It was that they did so with their hearts too. That's what Jesus is saying there. To worship God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. One more example is the seventh commandment, quickly. Chapter 23. So I mentioned I'd give you a couple of ones that are easy Here comes the one that's a little more difficult, a little more strange, a little more interesting. Chapter 23, uh, there is an application here of the seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. There's a whole list. This whole list of sexual sins. In the middle of this list of sin is this application that's very strange and interesting. Notice in verse 1, first of all, No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. What does that have to do with anything? That seems harsh. But remember, it's through the sexual organ that the seed of the woman would come. But also, the Lord was giving them a graphic example of the kind of perfection that was necessary to enter his holy presence. Even the slightest defect would bar one from access. They had the law, keep every law of God, and you can approach me. And to show that to them, like we would teach our children, the Lord gave these graphic examples. You've got to be perfect. You've got to be complete. You've got to be whole in every way to come before the the holy God of the universe. There's another example, verse 2. No one born of a forbidden union, and there's a whole list of those uh, in the law, may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. Again, notice what that verse is saying. Sin separates one from God's very own presence. And a father's sins have consequences on his family for ten generations. Again, that was meant to be a law to thrust upon them, as believers, humility, reverence, awe, repentance, and faith. And for hypocrites and unbelievers, it was meant to tell them, you'll never enter God's presence. You're under condemnation. Notice the third example, verse 3. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. 
even, even, again, even to the 10th generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Outsiders could not enter either. Now, later on, they would go into exile, they would come back, Nehemiah, chapter 13, they rebuilt the temple's wall, and they read the law of Moses, Nehemiah 13. That could have been anywhere from Genesis to Deuteronomy, but we know that it's this text, because here's what we read in Nehemiah 13, verses 1 and 3. And it was in, and, uh, and in it, the, the book of Moses, as it's called, was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. What did they do in response? They separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. God was teaching them for a time these serious truths of redemption and salvation. And all that strictness and all that harshness that sounds like to us was all meant to lead them and to teach them, to bring them to the Messiah. Because now the Messiah has come, he has taken down that dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. He's broken it down in Jesus' very own flesh upon the cross. And therefore, Paul tells us, through Jesus, we both, as Jews and Gentiles, those who are in and those who are out, those who are ritually pure and those who are exiled and those who are outsiders, we all have access in one spirit to the Father. That's what Paul tells us. Jesus has come to fulfill these things and to blow the door wide open to his presence. How do these strange laws make any sense to us? How are they relevant to us? Well, don't we, as parents, often make distinctions in our lives with our kids? What movies are appropriate? At what age that movie is appropriate? For which of our kids? I mean, we got four kids. We were super strict with Cyprian. Caden, a little bit more strict. Dax and Sadie, I mean, it's like no holds barred over there, you know? You try to make distinctions and do the best you can, what's appropriate, what's not, for which kids? Well, how do you do that when you have four kids and one kid's watching one movie and the other two kids are like peeking around the corner, what are they watching over there? We have rules in our houses, don't we? We have consequences. You know, what are the consequences? The rules, the consequences. And then we have, you know, the, our kids are getting responsible and they, be, they, they begin to grow out of what might be more silly kinds of rules into more mature rules. It's no different than with the Bible and in theology. The law of God has different aspects, different elements to it. There are lots of distinctions that are to be made. Some of these things in Deuteronomy are ceremonial, meaning they were given for a time for that purpose of pointing them to Jesus Christ. Ceremonial kinds of things. There are judicial things, punishments. We believe that those things were given to Israel as a nation for a temporary period of time until the fullness of times came. They're relevant to us in terms of the general teaching of those harsh penalties. They teach us about sin and salvation and about consequence but there are also moral things in the laws of God things that apply in all times and in all places and sometimes the the moral thing is found in different kinds of laws they're not always just sort of like you shall not murder that's a moral law but sometimes it comes packaged in ceremonial or even judicial things and all these laws whether they're ceremonial laws like 
entering the presence of God you know, as a Moabite, you can't do it. Whether it's a judicial law, uh, the punishment, taking a person out and stoning them to death, or just a moral law. They were all, all these laws are meant to do three things. They're meant to expose sin. They're meant to restrain sin. And they're meant to teach, uh, to teach sinners, saved by grace, how they are then to live. That means for you and me as believers that when it comes to our justification, our right standing and acceptability to God, the law of God is your foe. You can never stand before God by trying to obey these commands. The law is your foe when it comes to justification. You cannot obey God enough. You cannot obey him deep enough from the heart. You cannot obey him enough externally. You can't do it. Don't even try. Give up. Stop. When it comes to justification, the law is your foe. It can only tell you what to do, what not to do, how you've done it, how you've not done it, and the penalties for not doing what you were supposed to do in the first place. That's the first use of the law. That's the showing you your sins. I'll skip the second one. That has more to do with your life in the general world. But when it comes to your sanctification, the third use of the law, as we call it, the law is your friend. How? It shows you how to love God, how to love neighbor. And so we can sing in the Psalms and pray with the psalmist, how I love your law, O Lord. I delight in the law of the Lord. I will meditate upon it day and night. It is sweeter than honey. So the law is a foe when it comes to our trying to stand before God and be accepted by him. It's a friend and it shows us the way to go. The way to go. So let me just conclude this morning by saying that Deuteronomy is, as I mentioned, the theological core of the Old Testament. And yes, it's about the law. Lots of laws. Lots of laws. The Lord redeemed Israel from Egypt. He called them out. They disobeyed. Another generation replaced them, and he called them to follow its precepts. Now, it shouldn't surprise us, then, if Deuteronomy is so important to the Old Testament, that when the Lord came, the Lord who lived in that tabernacle, when he came to this earth in human flesh, our Lord Jesus, that he went out into the wilderness to, be, to fast and to pray for 40 days, Mimicking the Israelites 40 years in the wilderness. He went out there for 40 days and 40 nights to, to pray and to prepare himself for a temptation by the devil. And when Satan came, he did not come like he did to our first parent, Adam, in a garden. He came to Jesus out in the desert, in the wilderness. And when he tempted our Lord Jesus Christ, he did so with three temptations. 40 days and 40 nights of praying and fasting, and then three temptations. Do you know when the devil tempted Jesus in those three times, uh, those three times in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4, do you know, well, you probably know this, Jesus responded with Scripture, right? He always responded with Scripture. Throw yourself down. Don't tempt the Lord your God, and so forth. Do you know which book he quoted from three times? Those three quotations in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4, when our Lord was in the wilderness being tempted by Satan himself, 
came right from this book. That's how important it was. He knew the law of God inside and out. And the great thing for us is that we come to Jesus and we, we, we hear the law and we hear of our sins and it exposes our unrighteousness and it, 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 it crushes our attempts at trying to, to build a tower to heaven to be righteous and to be acceptable and to see God and to prove to God our worth and to prove to him just how good we've been. The law crushes all that stuff. And we say in repentance, Lord, I'm a sinner. I believe, help my unbelief. And we come to Jesus and we embrace him by faith. And it's not just that he wipes away our sins. He forgives us of our sins. We oftentimes say, you know, what did Jesus do for you? He died for my sins. And yes, he did. But the great thing about learning the laws and how Jesus fulfills them as their end, again, Romans 10 verse 4, or how he uses Deuteronomy in his quotations to the devil to counteract, to reverse the wilderness disobedience of Israel into his obedience. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, all of that obedience that he did, all of his perfections, all of his resisting sin, and all of his doing goods, where does all that go? What does all that do? It comes to you. It's given to you. We call that his righteousness, and it's given to you into your account you who cannot do anything good by nature. You who failed God miserably, who fallen short of his glory. You who tried to build a tower to heaven and God toppled it down. He gives you Christ's righteousness. All that you will ever need for this life and for all of eternity to stand before God clothed in perfection. There's nothing more that you need. There's nothing more that you need. Jesus Christ has done everything necessary so that you can enter the presence of God by faith and be acceptable to him forever. Let's pray. Our gracious and our great God, we bless and praise you for Jesus, the good news, the gospel, that he fulfills the law for us. And we ask now, Lord, that you would open our minds to these truths and help us, Lord, to reflect upon them this coming week. And as we come to the Lord's table, assure us again that we, as we've already prayed, as, as, as miserable offenders, that we are raised and lifted up in Jesus Christ to new life in him, freely of his grace, of his amazing love. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Together, all of God's people say, Amen.